We are continuing our, our sermon series in the Song of Songs, so we are in chapter 3. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, some ushers would love to bring you a Bible. It's always good to not just hear me read the Bible, but just to see the true gold that is in God's Word for us. This uh, past week, as I was thinking about the Song of Songs as a book, but then particularly this chapter, I thought of an ancient proverb uh, that I read recently. And it's about a, a woman, a young woman, a newly married woman and her family. And she, it was her, her job to go out every day early in the morning and walk into the city to gather water. And so she had these two jars that she would take with her, and then she would fill up, you know, for her family, the water necessary for the day, and she would then put them on either sides of this branch, and then she'd carry these two jars back to her house. And she did this day after day after day after day. Well, eventually, one of the jars got a small crack in it, and water began to leak And as cracks go, sometimes those cracks get bigger and bigger over time. And so eventually, when she'd arrive home, one of those jars only had sometimes a little bit of water left. I think in some ways that ancient proverb can summarize much of life, particularly as it relates to relationships, friendships, marriages, relationships with parents and children. We all have cracks, and over time, those cracks can get bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the question for us this morning is, what do we do with those cracks? What do we do with those cracks in our marriages? What do we do with those cracks in our marriages and in our friendships? Christian books are great. Read those. Uh, you know, go to counseling. That's great. There are lots of tools, but... Today, there are a couple tools that I'm wondering if you haven't thought of as it relates to our romantic relationships, our marriages, our dating relationships, and our friendships. And really, the ultimate, the ultimate tool, I'm guessing, because I hadn't thought of it, has everything to do with perspective. All relationships are risky. They take a risk. Pursuing a friend, pursuing a loved one, pursuing a spouse takes risk. You become vulnerable in the act of pursuing them. But one of the tools to help us in the midst of the cracks that inevitably come as we live in this broken world is that we need a perspective change. And that's what we find here. So go with me to chapter Three, the big idea that you're going to see behind me, I think it's there, is simply this. The risk of love can bring gladness through perspective. We're going to unpack that as we go. Basically, we're going to unpack that in two parts. The risk of love and then gladness through perspective. So first, the first section, we're going to read verse 1 to 5. On my bed by night, 
I sought him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. I will rise now and go about the city. In the streets and in the squares, I will seek him whom my soul loves. I sought him, but found him not. The watchmen found me as they went about in the city. Have you seen him whom my soul loves? Scarcely had I passed them when I found him whom my soul loves. I held him and he, and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and the chamber of her who conceived me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir or awaken love until it pleases. We'll, we'll stop there. So we left off in chapter two with this man and woman, and they are, the, the, the encouragement in chapter two was for some to wait, but their, their time for waiting was over, and so they're enjoying themselves and the intimacy and connection of marital love. And now we have a new scene in chapter three. The, the, the context in the setting is a bedroom, right? And so some have thought, maybe this is a dream. Maybe this isn't really happening. She's just dreaming and there's some, you know, kind of, uh, wonderful way you could interpret it that way. Or you could say, no, no, this isn't a dream. This, this, this really did happen, but it really doesn't matter, right? It's sort of like a Christopher Nolan movie, right? The ambiguity of it heightens the tension, heightens the beauty of it. And so here we have this woman and she's laying in bed and she She discovers something, doesn't she? She learns something. The man that she loves is gone. You really can see the controlling word in the first three verses, right? Right, you can just go through it. It is the most repeated word in that section in verse 1 through 3. So I sought him, and then it's I sought him but found him not. Verse 2, I will seek him. I sought him. Right? There's this repeated, repeated refrain over and over and over again. She cannot find him, and so she begins to seek him, pursue him. There's a sort of playful hide-and-go-seek going on, only she isn't playing. There's a sort of desperation to this woman. She cannot find the man that she loves. I mean, some of you experience this, right? It's late at night and you wake up and you realize your son and daughter aren't home and you're like, where are they? And you're worried. That's what's going on here. And sometimes in the midst of those, the the, the worry, the desperation, sometimes love makes you do desperate things. Sometimes love pushes you into risky Situations, And that's what happens, right? She goes into the city at nighttime, in the darkness, by herself, alone, as a woman. You know, she, she went from Puyallup to downtown Tacoma at night to search for him. I mean, I, I was in Seattle just walking around, you know, we went, walked from this church to dinner, and I saw, I think, like four or five drug deals as we were just walking in downtown Seattle. Like, cities can be dangerous places. And so here's this woman in the desperation of the moment. She doesn't know where the man that she loves is, and so she goes, puts on some clothes, and goes into the city at great risk to herself, socially and physically. But love does this, does it not? Pursuing the one you love is always a risk. 
pursuing any relationship, putting yourself on the line, getting to know someone, whether it's a friend or romantic, there is a risk involved. There's always a risk. When, uh, when I was in college, um, I became a Christian about halfway through my college experience. But prior to this, at my small kind of liberal arts college, I garnered a bit of a reputation. And I won't describe it, but let's just say it's not the sort of reputation that you want. But that was me. And then about halfway through, I wonderfully was converted. Someday, if you want to hear that story, you can ask me. I was wonderfully converted. And then I began to pursue this young lady named Lisa, my wife. And I remember I was pursuing and it went from friendship to dating. And then I remember this girl, Lisa, her best friend, our maid of honor in our wedding, pulled Lisa aside and told her about my reputation. In detail. Like, had Stephen really changed? Do, do boys really change that, that, that drastically? She wanted her friend to not get her heart broken. And Lisa had to take that and weigh that and realize there's going to be a risk involved in pursuing a dating relationship with Stephen. Indeed, she took the greatest risk ever. Luckily, she's not here. I'd start crying, but she did. Like, love involves risk. It's taking your heart and giving it to another person. Even friendship involves risk, does it not? Getting to know someone, going on walks with someone, telling them your story and pursuing them, it involves risk. Pursuing love in whatever form always is risky. But, but really the emphasis in these five verses is not really on the risk. It's like she's gladly putting everything on the line. Really, the emphasis is on the reward. Look, look there. So, so she, she goes into the city and she finds some watchmen, which just think of like a night security guard. And so they're, they're there to, to make sure that everything is safe and secure in the city. And so she, she asks them, like, this must be a small city, right? She's like, hey, have you seen the, the man I love? And as she just gets the, those words out, instantly she sees, I'm imagining, in the distance, she sees the man of her dreams. And right then, she runs to him. Verse 4. And she pursues him. And she held him. Do you see that? She held him. So it's as if she ran up to him and just grabbed him. And I think it's interesting. She doesn't say a word. I mean, she doesn't say, where were you? Like, I've been worried, sick. There's no sense that she like just chides him or gets mad at him. She just grabs him and holds him, grabs his hand, and then she takes him home. She takes him to, and it's described as her mother's home, which in that situation, you know, homes were passed on from, you know, generation to generation. So she just takes her man home. Verse 4, I held him and would not let him go until I brought him into my mother's house and into the chamber where she conceived me. I didn't think that this was going to be a Mother's Day sermon, but there you go. (laughs) Mothers are in this. Now, I have no idea how to apply it to mothers. I'm not even going to try other than saying, thank you, mothers, for conceiving us, right? That's all I got for her. But there you go. So she brings him in back home. 
goes back into the bedroom. So you see this whole scene, verse 1 to 5, starts in a bedroom and ends in a bedroom. And then right as she's about to shut the door, we've seen this time and time again, she, the, the door's just cracked a little bit, and she looks then at the camera, and she then addresses her girlfriends again and says, basically, what I'm doing is right, what I'm doing is faithful, what I'm doing is godly, what I'm doing is beautiful, but you hold your horses, you need to calm down, you're not ready for marriage, you're not ready for this form of intimacy. And she says, verse Five, we've seen this again in chapter two. I adjure you to take an oath, right? O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and the does of the field, basically, by all that is in the world, that you not stir up or awaken love until it please, so desires and so it, until it pleases. She lost, she searched, she found. It begins in a bedroom and ends in a bedroom. And the scene just ends. And we're going to see, starting in verse 6, that you're like, what just happened here? There's just a new scene that happens. But this scene ends where it began. Love found. Intimacy. Embrace. They're back together. Now, how do we apply this? I want to apply this in two ways. One to marriages and one to friendships. First, friendships. Um, you, you might not know this, but in every elder meeting, our, our elders meet every other week. And when we meet, part of this is we go around and talk about what's going on in our lives. We share maybe besetting sins. We, we share temptations. We ask questions about our marriages. We, we talk about things that are going on in our lives. We share things that we're praising God for and things that we need prayer for. And we go around and around and around. And it's scary because think about it. When you share these sorts of things, you could think, or I've thought, what are they going to do with that information? What if I share that and their estimation of me goes down? What if they tell other people about this? It's a risk. Sharing information about myself, what's going on in my heart, my relationship with God, my relationship with my wife and my family, my various temptations, Putting that out there with these men is a risk. But I, I can say without, without in any way stretching the truth that my best friends in this church are the elders. And I think the reason is simple. Because the deeper, the deeper friendships are forged when you take a risk, when you pursue the other person. So my question is, because I think this is just a discipleship question, as it relates to you in this room and your friendships that you have, I know friendships take risk. That's the cost of intimacy. It's the, the cost of closeness. But pursue one another. Go on walks with one another. Encourage one another. Ask questions of one another. Open yourself up. I know it's risky. It's scary. Like, don't do that with everyone. Like, you cannot be friends with everyone. I'm well aware of that. That would be inappropriate. But you need to be friends with someone. You need to open up your heart and your life to someone who they know you and you can know. Because to the extent that you do that is the extent to which you can grow a connection with someone else. So do that as friends. 
That should just be the normal thing of church life, the normal aspect of discipleship, pursue friendship. But then to the married, we're called to pursue one another. We we live in the Northwest, and one of the most lovely things about the Northwest is, generally speaking, culturally speaking, everyone's pretty chill. It's awesome. And one of the most annoying things about the Northwest is everyone's pretty chill. And so sometimes we just have life come to us. But as it relates to marriage, of all of life, we have to be active and initiate. I love how this woman, in some sense, doggedly, we might even say aggressively, pursues the man that she loves. And the same is true for husbands to wives. Pursuing one another. And here's the interesting thing is, if you're married here, you did it eventually. There was a time in which you were pursuing your spouse. Uh, When I started dating my wife, uh, our like second date, I had this great idea. And I said, we were in Seattle and I said, how about we go to a laser light show to my favorite hip hop band that you would, (laughs) I wish I was making this up. So I was like, come on, I bought tickets. I didn't even tell her. And so you'd sit on your back and there'd be a laser show. And then there's this 90s hip hop band. And you just listen to the music when this laser show is going. And here's the thing. She didn't even complain. She just went. I mean, that's when I knew I should marry this girl, right? But she pursued me and my passion and my love and thought, okay, I'll go do this because this is a way I can connect with him. This is what this woman does. She pursues him. She takes a risk and pursues her man and in so doing deepens the intimacy that she has with him. And we're all called to do this. We're all called within our marriages to pursue the other person. Sometimes not in ways that we would like, but always asking ways in which they would like. So just be curious. Be curious. Study your spouse and ask the question, what does it look like for me to take a risk and pursue them? Emotionally, emotionally, spiritually, socially, physically, whatever that is. Risk the pursuit, because only as you risk pursuing them will you deepen your intimacy with them. So that's the first. There's a risk to love. But now, starting in verse 6, we've got a whole scene change Starting in verse 6. So I'm going to read it now. What is this coming from the wilderness? Like columns from smoke, perfumed with myrrh and frankincense, with all the fragrant powders of merchants. Behold, it is the litter of Solomon. Around it are 60 mighty men, some of the mighty men of Israel, all of them wearing swords, expert in war, each with his sword at his thigh against terror by night. King Solomon made himself a carriage from the wood of Lebanon. He made it post, made its posts silver, its back of gold, its seats of purple. Its interior was inlaid with love by the daughters of Jerusalem. Go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon with the crown with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding, on the day of the gladness of his heart. All right. What in the world do we have here, Okay. So I spent the last week going, I have no idea in the world how these two things connect. I know they connect. 
They, they connect because there's lots of similarities. So you, it, you know, verse 11 ends with mothers. Verse 4 ends with mothers. There's this refrain to the daughters of, of Zion. So, so we're meant to connect these together. But if you're anything like me, sometimes you read God's word and you just have to bang your head against the word and say, what in the world does this mean? And how do these two things connect? Because we start in a bedroom and now the scene shifts and we have a wedding. We have this wedding processional from verse 6 to, le- to verse 11. That's, that's what we have going on here. Now, I think, is this like a flashback? What's going on? Well, I'm going to make my best attempt describing and explaining what I think is going on here. And I'll just say it has everything to do with perspective. Perspective. So from verse 6 to 11, we have a wedding processional. Uh, verse 6 uh, begins with a question. It's sort of a rhetorical question, isn't it? What is this coming out of the wilderness? Or you could put it this way. Who is this who's coming out of the wilderness? And then we don't know yet, but all of a sudden it's not just this site where like, you know, all the dust is picked up as this kind of caravan is coming. Then they begin to smell this amazing, exotic perfume coming out, you know, myrrh and frankincense, all these powders from merchants. So, so it's sight and smell. And then as the sort of processional gets closer and closer, all of a sudden they see, or we see, 60 mighty men, right? With swords all around this this thing. I mean, we find out that these are the green berets of Israel. The mighty men of Israel, ready to fight off anyone who would want to get anywhere close to what's happening in this scene. And they're surrounding what we learn then in verse uh, 9 is they're surrounding this carriage. Now, if you watch Discovery Channel or anything like this, this is one of those uh, carriages that four men would carry, right? And there'd be posts on them. And then there'd be like a carriage where someone would sit. But notice what it's, how it's described. Posts from Lebanon. Silver, gold, purple, stitched like Ferrari leather stitching, right? This is lavish, beautiful, glorious. And you might go, this is like the Rolls Royce of all carriages. And then you realize, oh, it's Solomon's. And Solomon had a lot of money. And so we have this carriage coming out of the wilderness, surrounded by the green berets of Israel. And it's getting closer and closer and closer until it finally arrives, verse 11. And that's when the woman speaks. She sort of interrupts this wedding processional and she tells her friends a couple things. She says, I want you to go out to this wedding and look at Solomon. You see the, see the command there? Verse 11. Get out, go out, O daughters of Zion, and look upon King Solomon. Just look at him. And particularly look at his face. Look at his gladness. Look at his joy. Look on his wedding day, the just joy that is coming from Solomon. I think this is lovely. I said this last week, but, but this, this book is written from the perspective of a woman who's teaching other women. So Proverbs is sort of a father speaking to boys, 
and this book is a woman speaking to younger girls. And so in this, in this time, not, not only does she interrupt and say, you need to wait, that's verse 5. Now she says, I want you to go to a wedding because I need you to have a perspective change. Now, what is the point of them going to a wedding? Um, I don't know if you saw William or Harry's wedding. I don't know if you're Team Harry, Team William. It really doesn't matter. But all of us watched, or at least millions did, they watched these two weddings. And they were lavish, were they not? Gorgeous. I mean, the whole scene is ridiculous. The beauty, the gold, the, the rituals, the, the, the long processional. And we just watched it. And most of us watched it for entertainment. So I don't think this woman is saying, I need you to go out to Solomon's wedding and just watch it because you're going to be entertained. That's not what's going on here. The purpose is much more about discipleship. She wants to put this relationship and she wants to contrast Solomon and his marriage with her relationship with her man. She has an ordinary relationship. That's verse 1 to 4, right? She's, you know, has her, she's in her mother's home that they evidently bought the, the, the house from their mother or were given it as a wedding gift of some sort. And she's out desperately searching. There's, there's an earthiness, a grittiness, a normal ordinariness to their relationship. And then instantly we're kind of transposed and just transfixed to this lavish, glorious, beautiful, luxurious, opulent wedding. And so the function of Solomon, because I said this each week, I don't think Solomon is the guy here. Solomon here is functioning as a foil. A foil is just a contrast. The, the best way I can explain this is um, using, because foils are just classic literary uh, devices, but, but one of the more famous ones that you might be aware of um, is from Harry Potter, okay? So Draco is a foil to Harry. So just think about this. Draco is rich. He grew up rich. He grew up with a mother and a father. He grew up never wanting, never not getting what he wanted. He grew up with the best education. He got the best robes. He got the best friendships. He got the best everything. But he is a nasty boy, is he not? And what's the function? We're meant to contrast him with Harry. Harry, no mother and father, lives under the staircase. He, he went without everything. And yet, he is virtuous. So the, the beauty and virtue of Harry is all the more virtuous when you contrast it to Draco. That's the purpose of Draco. He shines a light on the virtue of Harry. And that is what's going on here. Solomon, in his wedding, is serving as a foil to this ordinary marriage. And in and in so doing, what this woman is saying is, I want you to go look at Solomon in all the beauty and all of its opulence and all of its ridiculousness. And I want you to realize that our wedding, even though we might not have as much money as Solomon, our wedding is like that. Or you could put it this way. What she's basically saying is, and she's reminding these young girls that there is no such thing as an ordinary marriage. Remember, C.S. Lewis said there's no such thing as ordinary people? Well, we could change that. There's no such thing 
as an ordinary marriage. Uh, a lot of, there's a lot of talk within, within evangelical Christianity in America about how marriage is being eroded. That there's an assault on marriage. And I think I've read all of it. I think this is one way in which we are seeing marriages erode. Or we're seeing an attack on marriage. What we're reminded of here is that marriage is sacred. Like, we're not Catholic here, so we don't believe it's a sacrament, but they are right in the sense that marriage is meant to be framed in the sense that it is sacred. And that's the perspective that she wants these young girls to realize, that marriage is like two royals getting married. All marriages are like that. Uh, I, lo- I love doing weddings for, for Lots of different reasons, but it's always just crazy when you think of it through other people's perspectives. So I love actually just watching the guy as he's staring at his bride for like the first time when she walks in. I just think he he just looks stupid dumb and just like, you know, he's drooling and it's just like lovely. It's wonderful, right? But I also just love the perspective of like the flower girl. Like just think what she's thinking. Like her, her aunt or her cousin or her big sister is getting married and she's like, this is the most beautiful my sister's ever looked, right? She's wearing a dress, the most expensive dress that she will ever wear, and she's wearing it for like three hours. Like she's, like everyone is just, you know, doting on her and, and putting makeup on. I mean, everything about the scene is just lavish. And from the perspective of the flower girl, it's like, this is a royal wedding. This is just lavish. This is amazing. And just taking it all in. That's the sort of scene that Solomon, or that this woman wants her friends to give, to just change the perspective of marriage, to say that there is something sacred about it. The, the, the most ridiculous wedding that's ever been thrown, it, or the cheapest wedding that's ever been thrown, in one sense, are the same. They're both sacred. And in this time, actually, and in, uh, when Jesus comes on the scene, actually, when you got married in Jewish culture, you would sometimes wear a crown and a tiara to, to, to emphasize that on that day on the wedding, you are a prince and a princess. There's something very, very beautiful about all this. There's something sacred and royal about marriage. And she wants them to realize that though they might not have much, their love is anything but ordinary. Now, maybe you're like, Stephen, you're stretching it. That's not exactly what's going on here. Well, there's one more perspective that I want to point out to you that I think really brings this home for me, and I pray really brings this home to you. Go, go back to verse 6. There's this perspective that we're supposed to think about when we think of marriage, the sacredness of it. But there's more going on than meets the eye. So here we have someone coming out of the wilderness. Now, I'm convinced that this is the bride. Solomon shows up in verse 11. This is the bride. And I know, and I believe that because one, verse six is in a feminine form. And then if you go to chapter six, verse 10, who, the same language, who is this? Um, it's that same language. And we know that it's referring to the woman again. So, 
I'm convinced that what's going on here is that this is Solomon's carriage and the bride is coming, guarded, protected by these elite soldiers and arriving in a processional to Solomon, the king, on his wedding day. And so we have this scene, verse 6, the scene of, of a bride coming out of the wilderness with smoke following a cloud or a pillar. Just, just conjure up what these are alluding to. With all this beautiful perfume, she's being beautified and her perfection is glorious and she's got this amazing, lavish carriage. And then she arrives at the king who's glad. You guys, this, is this not the story of us? The story of the church? The story of the gospel? Like, this is exactly it, right? We are, as Christians, the bride who's coming out of the wilderness and we are protected and we will arrive at the king. This is what, uh, what Ben read earlier in Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 and Revelation 20, sorry, Revelation 20 and 21. Is it not? This ultimate wedding. And we're protected. Why? Well, we're, I mean, these green berets, right? These, these elite soldiers are amazing, but, but we're protected even farther and greater way because Christ protect, or God protects us by sending his own son to die for us. And then promises right before his ascension, I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to actually give you the Holy Spirit. And how is the Holy Spirit, how are we supposed to think about the Holy Spirit? Well, in many ways, the Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring. It is a down payment that God has given us to secure our safety in the wilderness until we arrive at our wedding night. When we arrive with God and that we can have that wedding that will last forever and ever, and ever. Paul writes about this in Ephesians 5, does he not? He, he wants us to reframe our ordinary marriages and use the lens of the gospel when we think about it. This is how we're to think about our marriages. There is no such thing as an ordinary marriage. Whatever brokenness is in all our marriages, whatever cracks we have in our marriages, they're still sacred and they're still a means and a message, a mirror pointing to Christ's love for the church. That's what's going on in verse 6 to 11. These girls need perspective that the ordinariness of their marriage needs to be filtered through the extraordinary wedding of the king. In this It's King Solomon. For us, it's King Jesus. I um I I told you an ancient proverb. I didn't finish the story. There was nothing actually proverbial about what I said. This woman has this jar that's has a crack in it. And it grows over time. And eventually, the jar speaks, because all ancient proverbs are a little weird, right? But the, the jar speaks and, like, rebukes the woman and says, why haven't you patched me? And the woman looks at the jar and says, have you noticed that there are beautiful flowers on your side of the path? You see, I didn't patch you because 
Every, every early spring, I go and I scatter seeds. And then as I walk, your little crack slowly is spilling water. And every evening I go and I fetch all the flowers and I fill our house with the beauty of those flowers and their fragrance. What you thought was a crack was actually a gift. Our marriages all have cracks. Our friendships all have cracks. My guess is during COVID, some of those cracks, some of those relationships, those cracks got bigger. And yet, you can, as you change your perspective, when you think about your friendships and your marriage, and you filter your marriages through the gospel, they can be a gift. And that's what we see in this chapter. Let me pray. Lord, we, uh, we are so grateful that even in the midst of brokenness that we have in our lives, in our hearts, in our relationships, we know that the hope isn't that all of them will be fixed. That hope is attached to your return or our coming home. And yet, Lord, even in the little ways in which we fail, we know that we can still, through the, through the power of the gospel, we can filter our eyes and see our spouses as you see them, see our friends as you see them, and glorify you in, in that way. Lord, we, we know that you are precious. We thank you that you will lead us home. Persevere us, Lord. Grant us confidence of that assurance. We pray in your son's name. Amen.